Micah 7, 16 through 20. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, their ears shall be deaf. And they shall lick the dust like the serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. And they shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You shall cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you've sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Father, we are blessed to know that this is your holy word. We pray that your Holy Spirit who wrote them would implant them deeply in our hearts so that we would hide them in our hearts so that we would not sin against you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. When pastors get together, sometimes one of the things we wind up discussing is how long is your ideal sermon? What do you shoot for? And for some, it's I don't ever look at the clock. For our, our brother Dan Overdyne, who preached at Long Beach for many years and their worship service was live on the radio, he had to have only a 30-minute service, a sermon. And the uh, service itself had to be exactly one hour long. And many of you have not ever, ever asked me this question, but just so you're in case you're interested, I generally go try to have as a goal about a 40-minute sermon. And I share that with you today because last week, as we covered Micah 7, 11 through 15, uh, we did preach that for that 40-minute period or so and reflected on that day, the term that our prophet used to talk about the time of and between the first and second advents of Jesus. We saw that phrase in verses 11 and 12. And that day included, of course, Jesus' incarnation. It included his earthly ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and even includes his ongoing reign now in glory as our ascended Lord. His kingdom, we reminded ourselves of in verse 12, is extending worldwide from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain in Micah's words. And it's a kingdom full of marvelous wonders, as we ended last Lord's Day sermon in verse 5. Yet even in that expanded kingdom, not all nations, not all citizens will bend their knee to King Jesus in this life. And as we begin our sermon this Lord's Day with verses 6 and 7, we really could have included them last week if time had permitted, because we are coming back to that theme of in that day. And in that day, of course, again, we've referenced that's the day in which we now live. And we see here, sadly, that sinners remain in that day and the doom that awaits them when Christ returns. But we overall have a picture for us then of the great wickedness of men since the fall of Adam in the garden. And it serves to more vividly demonstrate just how gracious our God is as he extends his great forgiveness for sins. And that's how we end the book 
in verses 18 through 20. So first then, let us note man's great wickedness, and then secondly, let us note God's great pardon from our text. Verses 16 and 17 really do demonstrate just how vile man's great wickedness is. We note three devastating consequences of sin. Verse 16 begins with this phrase, the nation shall see and they shall be ashamed of all their might. The first result of man's great wickedness is a great helplessness, a great helplessness. The might that they have, they will recognize whatever they've accomplished in this life, even if it's a great empire, even if it's great wealth, whatever they do, it is nothing in the sight of God Almighty. Micah probably is immediately thinking of the Assyrians, the Babylonians. We've seen his references to them throughout his prophecies in our book. And all citizens of these lands will see the wondrous works of God as we talked about at the end of verse 16. And as a result of that, they will recognize just how impotent they are before that great God. All the citizens will see how God restores his people and then brings devastation upon them. And thus they will be then ashamed of their useless might. And thus they will have to put their hands over their mouths, as verse 16 continues to tell us. They have nothing to say to Almighty Jehovah in their helplessness. Their ears will be deaf to Jehovah's message because they remain spiritually in their sin. Well, that's true, of course, not only for the Babylonians, for the Assyrians, but it's also true for those in our day, that great day of Micah, because the spread of Christ's church will continue, and they will not be able to stop it. And one day they will have to acknowledge their helplessness before the God, uh, before whom the God, the God they've sinned against. And as we've said throughout our sermon series in Micah, we really cannot uh, understand the book of Isaiah or the book of Micah without re recognizing that these are contemporaries, contemporaries who had much the same theme. And my, Isaiah proclaims the truth that wicked men, regardless of what power they may possess on earth, have no hope to defend themselves when confronted by Almighty God. So if you'd like to turn to Isaiah 40 with me, some of you may recognize this is wonderful passage that begins with the words of encouragement, comfort, comfort you, my people. And the text goes on to remind us the reason of, for that comfort is God's enemies will be completely destroyed. Notice how Isaiah says, sinful men are helpless before God. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and they're accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Wicked sinners are nothing but dust before God, a drop in the bucket that will soon disappear. And if we didn't understand that poetry, Isaiah makes it even more plain in verse 17. All nations are as nothing before him. And if that's not bad enough, they're accounted as less than nothing. They are complete emptiness, helpless, hopeless against a holy God. In verses 21 through 23, continue that theme. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Remember, their ears are deaf, Micah tells us. They can't hear. 
Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth that he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, he spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing. Remember the mighty in Micah are impotent. These princes can do nothing. And rulers of the earth are emptiness, just like the rest of mankind was seen as empty in verse 17. One more verse, Isaiah 49, I'm sorry, 45, verse 9. Isaiah 45, verse 9. And I reference this because many of us will remember and hear the echo of Paul's teachings in Paul of Paul in Romans 9, when Paul says, God may have created you as a vessel of honor or dishonor, and you have no right to complain against your creator. And Paul's words come from Isaiah 45, 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command, command me concern? I'm sorry, that is not the right verse. It's verse 9. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot from among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Obviously, pots can't talk to their creator, and they have no right to do so. If God chooses not to have a handle on you, that's the way it goes. If God sees you in your wickedness and destroys you, that's the right, that's the prerogative. Indeed, that is a divine and proper response to wicked men. And so we remind ourselves that in that last day, When Christ returns, rebellious sinners will acknowledge their sin. They will bend their knee to King Jesus. They are helpless to avoid the eternal damnation that their sins deserve. As the author of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 13, all are naked and exposed. They're helpless, they're shamed, and they're unable to escape. They're naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we all must give an account. So turning back to our text in Micah, then we see man's great wickedness doesn't just result in helplessness before God. It also results in great humiliation before God as well. Helplessness and then humiliation. Verse 17 tells us, they shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. I assume most of us immediately were reminded that wicked sinners face the same humiliation that Satan and the serpent faced as part of the great curse as soon as Adam, the first man, became the first sinner in the garden. And so Genesis 3.14 tells us, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat, all the days of your life. The same curse, the same humiliation for unrepentant sinners will take place as happens to Satan and the snake in the garden. And so our next phrase, uh, and so we're reminded rather in that famous messianic psalm, Psalm 72 that Chuck read for us during the distribution of the Lord's Supper last Lord's Day. Pay good heed to uh, Micah 7, 12. While I read Psalm 72, 8, and 9, notice the incredibly similar language here. May he have dominion from sea to sea, 
and from the river that is Euphrates to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. That was Psalm 72, 8 and 9. Again, very similar to what we read in Micah 7, 12. The human, so then, we clearly see great humiliation. And it's also compared in our next phrase in verse 7 to those who, come, uh, to, who are like the crawling things of the earth. And some of your translations may have worms. It's really hard to identify what animals are involved here. This word is only used one other time in the Old Testament, and it's in Deuteronomy 32.24, when God condemns his people and tells them that if they remain in their rebellion and their covenant unfaithfulness, that he will punish them with the venom of things that crawl on the dust. I am no expert in this area, but I'm not sure that there are too many worms that have venom in them. Perhaps you can correct me at the end of worship if you know better than I, but it doesn't matter a whole lot what crawling things it is referencing at this point. The point is, the people here who rebel against God are in that same cursed position as his people were if they rebelled against him, as Satan himself is, as the snake was in the garden. When Christ returns, Wicked men will face abject humiliation as he makes all his enemies his footstool. They will indeed lick the dust before him. Man's great wickedness not only results in great helplessness but it also, and hopelessness and great humiliation, it also thirdly results in great horror before our God. In great horror before our God. Notice Micah 7 the last portion of verse 17. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds, probably referencing those worms, those serpents, trying to hide underground, but they have to come out. They cannot hide from a holy God. Um, and as they do so, they tremble. That is, they raise an uproar, is how we could translate that. Chaos, calamity awaits those who've rebelled against God. There's no fortress strong enough for any wicked sinner to hide from the God of heaven. And that trembling comes, we see, because they stand in dread before the Lord our God in verse 17. Trembling, dreadful, and then the third word used here, the third verb, they shall be in fear of you. That is a horrible thing. Those who've mocked God in this life will face the horror of hell when Christ returns at the culmination of the great day of the Lord that Mike has been summarizing in the verses before us. And it doesn't matter if modern man smugly scoffs at the concept of hell. And sadly, many evangelicals have determined that it really doesn't mean the Bible doesn't really speak of eternal torment in hell. Brothers and sisters, we must never fall for Satan's error there because the teaching of the Bible is quite clear. And so the warning of King Jesus must be heeded by wicked sinners. We've listed a couple of passages in, in our outlines. I want to add a couple of more this Lord's Day to really emphasize for us that hell is real and it is horrible. Please just listen. Jot down the references if you'd like. Our Savior tells us, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10, 28. 
But he also describes that place in, of hell in Matthew 9.14 as the place where the wicked's worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Matthew 25.41 Matthew 25.41 tells us that on Judgment Day, Jesus will proclaim this horrible, horrible condemnation. Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Wicked men will spend eternity facing the horrors of hell along with their father, the devil. Jesus' apostle John further enlightens us in Revelation 20.10 and 21.8. Revelation 20.10 and 21.8. Remember the Holy Spirit inspires John to write these words. The devil was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur and will be tormented day and night forever. That's the devil's plight. But the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in that same place, in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. The same curse and the same eternal damnation awaits wicked sinners because sin is that great before a holy God. Well, some of you may be asking this Lord's Day, is there no escape from these awful consequences of this sin? Are all sinners doomed to helplessness, humiliation, and the horror of hell because of our wicked rebellion against God? And it is my great joy and it is my great privilege as I do each Lord's Day as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus to answer resoundingly, praise God, yes, there is an escape. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's for all men. All men stand as wicked before God. They deserve his wrath and curse. They are helpless. They are humiliated. And they stand in horror. But thanks be to God, the verse in Romans 6.23 continues. But the free gift of God, the gift that none of us deserve, but God graciously gives to us who are his people, is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. And Paul also in another place tells us how that takes place. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake, that is for the sake of sinful man, God the Father made his son Jesus to be sin for us, even though Jesus knew no sin. See, the perfect God-man took our place on the cross. He suffered the helplessness, the humiliation, and the horror of God's wrath that our sins deserved, so that we now might become the righteousness of God. And to be made right with God, to escape his wrath and curse, we must repent, you must repent of your sin. You must hate it, and forsake it and turn in faith to the Lord Jesus and trust only in him to save you from your sins. If you have never done so before, do so now because God is a holy God who must and who will bring eternal consequences upon unrepentant wicked men who do not trust in Christ to save them from their sins. But brothers and sisters, our reminder today the reality of hell should really cause us all who have truly repented and turned in faith to Christ to be even more zealous in our evangelism. Because if we really believe in the eternal punishment of unrepentant men, we should be more eager 
and bold in proclaiming to our lost loved ones, our friends, our relatives, our neighbors, that they need to embrace Christ and they must flee to him in order to escape the wrath that is to come. As we consider the wickedness of men, we don't have to end there. We rejoice now as we continue in our study of Micah and as we conclude our time together in Micah by rejoicing in the greatness of God's pardon for sinners. And as we turn our attention back to our text, I really do hope that our time together in Micah over the past few months has helped dispel something that so many people foolishly believe about Old Testament prophets, and that is that they only speak of gloom and doom, they only harp on people's sins, and they emphasize only God's wrath upon sinners. We've had three cycles of prophecies in the book of Micah. I don't remember if you recall that. But in all three cycles, yes, there was an emphasis on sin. Yes, there was an emphasis on judgment. But in all three cycles, it always ended with a call for restoration, a promise of deliverance, the joy of knowing salvation comes to God's people. And that's true, by the way, Isaiah all the way through Malachi. There's always that hope. There's always that trust. And of course, we recognize that salvation ultimately comes from the promised Messiah from the prophets, whom we know as the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to bring redemption to his people. And so as we end today, our time and our time with Micah, noticing the great contrast once more between God's great pardon and man's great wickedness, Micah asked a rhetorical question at the beginning of verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? It's really a play on words. Micah's name means who is like Yahweh. Who is like our covenant God who pardons iniquity? And of course the answer is no one. Pardon means to take away or to remove. And in our context we're talking about taking away our sins or forgiving them if you will. There is no other God who forgives sins like Jehovah. God's great pardon then reveals his unique nature. God's great pardon, first of all, reveals his unique nature. Pagan nations around Israel constantly receive sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice, but those people never knew if their gods were appeased. I don't know if any of you have ever read any of Greek, Greek myths, but you never knew if Zeus was going to be happy with you no matter what you did, or the others in the Greek pantheon. They acted more like human beings, or just more like human beings, really, than God himself. And today I want to bring up uh, Islam, because Muslims dutifully perform the five pillars of Islam. We won't go through all five of them right now, but they're all based on works that they hope will appease and make Allah happy. Let me just bring up one now because we are in the month of Ramadan where they think if they fast from sun uh, rise to sunset, somehow Allah might be happy with them. And the emphasis there is on might be. Because even though these five pillars are supposedly the bedrock of Islam and they are revealed in uh, supposedly to Muhammad, there is no guarantee on Judgment Day that uh, Allah will be satisfied. It really depends on his mood or how he's feeling at the time or what his desire is. At the time. Isn't it amazing that we don't have to worry about that, brothers and sisters? Who is a pardoning God like our God? No one. Only the God of heaven can be described in this way, verse 8, as verse 18 ends. He delights in steadfast love. He delights in steadfast love. That's the word that we often use, and 
We've mentioned often hesed, which refers to his covenant faithfulness, can mean kindness, can mean grace, mercy, loving kindness, so many different ways to interpret this verse. But please don't lose the point. The point is God is faithful to his covenant people. He forgives, he pardons their sin because it's part of his nature. He will again have compassion on us. We read at the beginning of verse 18 as well. This is indeed a loving God, a unique God with his love for his people. Would you turn back with me if you want or give good heed once more to the prophet Isaiah, that contemporary of Micah. And we want to turn to Isaiah 43, verse 25. I will tell you, I'm convinced this is a verse that we too often ignore, I think, um, in our talking about God's nature and his attributes and who he is. So notice in Isaiah 43, verse 25, this is Jehovah. This is God speaking. And he says, I, I am he who blots out your transgression. And you might think the next statement's going to be for your sake because you're sinners. But notice what it says. I blot out your transgression for my own sake. See, God is such a loving, forgiving, forgiving, pardoning God, full of compassion. It's just what he does. It is his nature. That's who I am, and that's what I do. So I'm forgiving you for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. Who is a pardoning God like our God? No one. Thanks be to God that that's the God that we have as our covenant God. That's the one with whom we rejoice this Lord's day. Would you turn over to Isaiah 55? These words will be probably more familiar to us. Uh, This is a wonderful passage reminding us of the forgiveness that we have in Christ and the joy that accompanies it. Isaiah's told us it's one that we can't buy with milk or, I mean, we can't buy with our own money, but we're told to come buy and eat like wine and milk. And then the prophet tells us in verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. There's a great definition, description of repentance. We called on sinners to repent just a little earlier in the the sermon, and here it is. Those who do repent, we're told, God will have compassion on him. And our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And that word abundantly can be translated, he will pardon upon pardon, he will multiply pardon. Point is, he keeps on forgiving, he keeps on forgiving, and he keeps on forgiving. When we repent, he forgives. That's who he is. And then he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord. It's not of our nature naturally to forgive, is it? How many of us have had to train children to learn when one does something against the other? The one's supposed to say, I'm sorry, and then the other one's supposed to say, I forgive you. But we all heard how that happens sometimes. I'm sorry, I forgive you. That's not how God forgives. God forgives abundantly because it's part of his nature. It comes from a sincere desire to forgive sinners of their sins. Thank God he's not like us. His pardon's unique. He's the holy, truly offended God by sin, and yet he does pardon. 
Yes, he may discipline us for long periods of time in our sin. But I also want us, as we turn back to Micah 7, to notice our text goes on to tell us in verses 18 of our text. Well, I wonder why it looks strange. I'm in Zephaniah. (laughs) All of a sudden, none of these words were the same. Micah, I'm back. Here's what it says. He doesn't retain his anger forever. Why? Because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us regularly, repeatedly, ongoing forgiveness, no matter how often we sin, when we genuinely repent. He genuinely forgives. He genuinely pardons. He doesn't retain his wrath upon his people for long. David had the same sentiment in Psalm 30, verse 5. Remember David, who committed all kinds of wicked sins, could say this, His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. And if I can expand on that, he may discipline us throughout this life, but his favor will be upon us throughout eternity. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And why does that joy come? It comes because, according to our text, he delights, end of verse 18, in steadfast love. Joy comes to us because our pardoning God delights in forgiveness. And so not only do we see in our text before us the uniqueness of God's pardon, but we also see the greatness of God's pardon as well. It's seen in this way, it removes both the guilt and the penalty of sin. It removes both the guilt and the penalty of sin. As we examine verse 18, the two words used for sin and the two verbs used to tell us how God deals with them, that will help us understand more clearly that idea. First of all, the guilt of our sin, the word iniquity. Um, One has defined it this way, Lutheran scholar, theologian, and I think this is a great definition. This is one of the strongest terms for sin, and it denotes perverseness, which makes a man guilty before God, a debtor with no possibility of ever ridding himself of sin. See, there's the guilt in the word iniquity there. And we would all acknowledge that we can do nothing in and of ourselves to, to remove that sin. We read Titus 3, verses 4 through 7, as our assurance of pardon because we were reminded there it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saved us. The work of the triune God was involved in that salvation in Titus uh, 3, 4 through 7 as well. So the guilt's removed as he, he pardons, he takes it away. But notice the next word, the word transgression used in verse 18 for sin. Transgression is an emphasis on rebellion or offense against God, but he passes over it. The word is used uh, for travelers is passing over, as in they pass over a city or they pass by a city on their journey. And we're also reminded from 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ is our Passover. God passes over our rebellion because Christ has died for us. And so we are reminded that God's pardon is so great because it has removed the guilt and the penalty of our sins. But it's also so great because it's complete and it's irreversible. 
It's complete and it's irreversible. Notice the end of verse 19. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Tread underfoot indicates complete victory over sin, over its guilt, over its power, over its penalty. And it's interesting, we just read earlier in our text that wicked men will be uh, lick the dust. God will make them his footstool. Satan as well. And so this other enemy of God, sin itself, will be trampled underfoot, totally vanquished, and it never will or can overcome God. And we know that, but let me assure you, beloved, it can never and it never will overcome us as God's people because he promised to pardon us and he keeps his promise within as part of his nature. And yes, we may rebel and sin against our God, but it will never result in the the full guilt and punishment that our sin deserves. Why? God has cast them into the depths of the sea. They're fully removed. They'll never resurface. And one has said it this way. God has not only cast our sins in the bottom of the ocean, he's put up a no fishing sign as well. Satan can't bring those sins up again. God's taking care of them. And we can't, we we ought not to, uh, uh, we ought to mourn, of course, and grieve over our sins. I recognize there's a balance here, but we should never grow into despair over our sins if God's cast them into the bottom of the sea. See, there's no need, beloved, to wonder if your sins are forgiven or if you can be defeated by them. God's God's pardon is complete. It's irreversible. And it defeats both the guilt and the power of sins. And it reveals his unique nature. And we read Psalm 103, and we read Colossians 2 earlier. And I want to just briefly go back to them because these passages wonderfully reinforce the truths that we have uh, seen before us already in our text this Lord's Day. We won't read all of Psalm 103 again. Let's just turn to the heart of it in chapter, uh, or verses rather, 8 through 12. Notice again, God's Holy Spirit inspires Micah just as much as he inspired the psalmist. No wonder we have these same truths brought up for us. Verse 8, the Lord is merciful, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, He's abounding in steadfast love. This is his nature. It is his unique nature. He is a pardoning and a forgiving God. Verse 9, he won't always chide, nor will he always keep his anger forever. His anger turns to compassion, as Micah reminds us. In verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. He removes the guilt and the penalty of our sins. And then image that Isaiah used in Isaiah 55, for as the heavens are higher or above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. Micah said our sins are cast into the bottom of the sea. Our psalmist says as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Full, full pardon takes place. It's complete and it's irreversible. And of course that pardon would never have taken place and will never take place apart from faith in the Lord Jesus, the one who died for sinners on the cross. And that's why our New Testament reading was Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And once more we see the forgiveness of sin. 
God's great pardon clearly on display in these verses for us. Notice Colossians 2.13. You who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, you were in that horrible, humiliating, helpless condition. You were dead in your sins. You were uncircumcised, unclean before God. But God made you alive together with him. And he now has forgiven you of all your trespasses. He's pardoned you fully. Why? He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. We were guilty before God. We broke his law. But this he set aside. He nailed it to the cross. Satan, wicked men, sin are all destroyed by Jesus on the cross. We are pretty familiar with this hymn, but let me remind you of the sentiments. I think that's exactly what we just read in Colossians 2. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh my soul. May we all spend our days praising our God for the abundant pardon we have. Our sins have been nailed to the cross. Removed as far as the east is from the west. In the bottom of the sea. Well, there's one last great truth about God's pardon in Micah that we ought to consider before we close our time this Lord's Day together. And that is this. God's great pardon shows his covenant faithfulness. It shows his covenant faithfulness. How many times throughout our our summary of this prophecy have we read about the covenant unfaithfulness of Israel? And so once more we see the great contrast between the wickedness of sinful man and the pardon of our God. He is covenantly faithful. And it's inferred in verse 18 where we read this phrase. We skipped over it a, a while ago. Who's a God that pardons? Who passes over transgression? Notice it's not for everybody. We've already said wicked nations will be destroyed. But it's for the remnant of his inheritance. Those who are truly his people. Of course, in Micah's day, that would have been the people of Israel. And in our day, we recognize it's God's church. He gathers together his church as, from all corners of the earth. And he pardons the sins of the elect. That's something we can be assured of in Scripture. We have a second reminder of the covenant nature of God's pardon. We've already mentioned it, and that is the word hesit appears. Anytime you see that word, loving kindness, mercy, steadfast love, we have it reappear in verse 20 as well, the steadfast love that God displayed to Abraham. Anytime you you hear that in the Old Testament, know that we're talking about God's covenant dealings, his kind covenant dealings with his Old Testament people. But the covenant faithfulness is most clearly spelled out for us as as our book ends in verse 20. You will show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham, as you've sworn to our fathers from the days of old. See, God promised with an oath to Abraham that all nations of the earth would be blessed through him and his offspring. And that's the same oath to Isaac and to Jacob. And ultimately, of course, to Abraham's great offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of us who are united to Christ because we've been delivered from our sins. Our covenant God cannot lie. He's bound himself with an oath to uh, cast out all of our iniquities. Yes, our sin is great, but God's pardon is greater. 
Remember what Paul, Rome, Paul said in Romans 5.20? Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Well, our 40 minutes, actually it's been 36 so far, are just about over. But may we, like Micah, spend a lifetime, not just 36 minutes, a lifetime marveling and rejoicing and proclaiming who is a pardoning God like our God. Our lips ought to be full of praise for that pardon. And may we faithfully serve him without fear and in holiness and in righteousness all of our days. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we know that your great apostle Paul at one point said, but for the grace of God, there go I. And we would proclaim that as well. We left in our sinful condition would be no better than the wicked men that we've read about today. We uh, deserve that humiliation, that hopelessness, that helplessness, the horror, the dread of you, a holy God. But thanks be to God, you've poured out your wrath upon our Savior. You've nailed our sin to the cross. So help us to recognize that we bear it no more and we spend our lives rejoicing in that. That doesn't mean then we freely live however we want. Quite the opposite. We ought to be those who, because of that great grace in Christ, live with lips of praise but with lives of sacrifice. Father, would you help us to be ready to repent because we know that it is in your nature to, to forgive those who truly do repent. Help us not to grow in despair over sin. Our, our, our great adversary, Satan, knows his doom is sure, and he wants us to be doomed as well. So help us to remember that you have cast our sins into the sea, and we need not go back and fish them up again. But Father, we would also cry out to you that we would recognize the reality of hell. We know it's true. We would, we would uh, proclaim that truth readily on our lips, but help us to live as if we truly believed it. Help us to see sinners doomed for perdition. And our desire would be that they would turn from their sin and embrace the Lord Jesus. Father, we also would cry out to you that if there are any here who have yet to turn from their sin and embrace the Lord Jesus, would you grant them the repentance and faith that would allow them to know what it means to have a pardoning God like our God who would know what it means to rejoice in a God who is covenantly faithful, who has promised to forgive his people. Once more, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for that forgiveness. And we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.